So great. How many of you uh, snickered a little bit when you heard about wearing reflective vests and walkie-talkies? Anybody? So fun. Uh, we're still trying to decide if we're going to trust people with whistles as well in the parking lot, but uh, it's so great. We, we are so thrilled and just grateful for the growth and just so new friends and new people plugging into our community. And so I will say the parking lot team is going to be incredible to help with just flow. And we're also looking at shifting our 930 service a little bit up a few minutes so that we can create some more margin in the parking lot as well. So be on the lookout for information about that. But if you're able to, if you're physically able to, I'd love to invite you to stand just for a moment as I read today's foundational text. If you have a Bible, it's in Genesis chapter 2. I don't believe... Uh, All these verses are on the screen, and so if you have a Bible or the Bible app, I invite you to follow along. But here's what it says in Genesis 2, uh, starting in verse 18. This is part two of us just talking about life-giving relationships. It says in Genesis 2, starting verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper that's suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the sky and to every animal in the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper that was suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh. At that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, At last, this is bone of my bones, and this is flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Heavenly Father, Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to have life-giving relationships. Speak to us through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So this idea of life-giving relationships for this month is so important. I mean, obviously, when it comes to February, people think about relationships a lot. But the truth is, as believers, we believe that we should be the most life-giving people on the planet. Now, let me just be honest. Not every relationship we enter into is life-giving. Are you tracking with me? Uh, don't you know that there's some people that were born with the spiritual gift of negativity? Have you ever met those folks? Yeah? Have you met those people that burst your bubble at just the right time when, you know? And uh, I, I confessed at 930 uh, that I am guilty of this as well. I know that would be shocking. But earlier this week, I forget if it was this week or last week, but uh, Laura spent like three hours cleaning our refrigerator. Now, doesn't that sound like a lot of fun? She spent about three hours cleaning our refrigerator. She had three bags, like large garbage bags, full of stuff that needed to be tossed. And so she's sort of proud of herself. This needed to be done, and she's got it clean. And I walk in, and being the clueless husband I am... I look at the three trash bags, and instead of oogling over how clean our refrigerator is, I say they didn't pick up our trash like they were supposed to yesterday. Our dumpster is completely full. Now we've got three bags of smelly food. What are we going to do with it? Was that a life-giving response from my husband? (laughs) Honey, was that life-giving? She's like 
could you just take a moment? Could you just admire how clean? And I'm telling you, it's clean. I mean, I, I hate to be too gross, but that piece of that little bit of jelly that had been on the, on the top shelf for about three years and a crust over, it's finally gone, right? <laughs> Y'all have those drawers, don't you? You have those, yeah, let's just be honest. And uh, so in that moment, I realized, man, I blew it. So, so when I talk about life-giving relationships today, I'm talking to myself as well. I've got a lot to learn. Are you all with me? We want to be the kind of people that add value to the people around us. We want to be the kind of people that are encouraging to the people around us. We want to be the kind of people that pulls God's best out of the people around us. God created us to be life-giving relators. And so here's what I want to do today. I mentioned already, Pastor Chuck had an incredible word last week talking about not judging and uh, it was so, so practical and really helpful. I, I encourage you to check it out. What I want to do is I want to zoom out a little bit or maybe rewind a little bit and talk about just a general framework around having life-giving relationships. So there's three questions I want to build this morning's teaching around. Question number one is where did this all start? All right, what is the foundation for true life-giving relationships? Question number two is what went wrong? I mean, what went wrong? Why is it that a lot of us have relational strain uh, day in and day out? And then the third question is, how do we recapture true life-giving relationships? So let's start with number one. Number one, where did this all start? Where did this all start? Well, quite simply, this all started in the garden. So what's interesting is when you read Genesis 1, 2, and chapter 3, God created everything. There's sort of this refrain that happens over and over again where it says, and God created and then it says that he responded to that creation by saying, it was what? It was good. So God creates everything. So, so you read through this, and God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. He put the lights in the sky. It was good. And on and on and on and on, it says, it was good, it was good, it was good, until you get to the end of chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, Adam's there in the garden, at the end of chapter 2, Adam is living in the most picturesque place on the planet. I mean, think about the beauty of the Garden of Eden. Think about the, 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 the fruit that's there. Think about the lushness of, of all the vegetation around. It's a wonderful environment. There he is in the garden. He's got complete access to God himself. I mean, it's this amazing environment that God said, and it is good. And then you get towards the end of chapter 2 in verse 18, and it says, but it is not good for man to be alone. So even in the most perfect environment, even in an environment that God himself crafted, even in this environment where God has access to Adam, he still says something is not good. And I don't want us to miss that, because even in the perfect environment, there's something missing. And so what's interesting is in the rest of these verses, God brings all of the animals in front of Adam. He parades them in front of Adam. Now, as a kid, I used to think maybe that just took a moment and he just, uh, you know, spoke it, you know, all the names very quickly. But now as an adult, I'm like, that took hours and months, maybe even years. We don't, we don't know how long that time frame was, but every animal comes by Adam. Every animal comes by Adam. He names them and God says, and so that's what they're called. So I have no idea how Adam came up with mosquitoes or aardvarks or, I, you know, I have no idea why he called some dogs manly dogs and some dogs cockapoos like ours. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that after every animal went by, it says at the end of verse 20 of chapter 2, there was not found a helper 
suitable for him. And so God, in that moment, creates Eve. Maybe the thing that was missing for Adam was not something, it was actually someone. So here's the reminder. You and I, we are actually created for relationship. So when we talk about life-giving relationships and we ask, well, where did this all start? It started because it was created in us by God himself, even in the most perfect environment, even in the most picturesque scene that you could ever imagine. There was still a need, and that need wasn't for something else. That need was for someone. And so God crafted Eve. God created Eve as the answer to this man's missing peace. And so the reason why I want to hang out there for a second is because sometimes I think we don't know what to do with that desire to connect with somebody. I think there's some people that that feel that desire so strongly, they connect with whoever's out there. They're like, you know, anybody, anybody, anybody that will give me affirmation or whatever, I'll go after it. Uh, For other people, they feel guilty about that desire. They're like, man, I should be stronger than that. I mean, it should just be me and God and I should be good with that. But I just pause for a second and say Adam was in the most perfect environment, and yet there's still a need that was created by God himself. Let me give you a couple of, I don't know, examples of how we're created for relationship. The first one, if you're a note taker, is to say we're, we're, we're made to have a relationship with God. We're made to have a relationship with God. Uh, you and I are, are created. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes that eternity is set in every single person's heart, which means that I think all of us have some sort of sense, even if we don't know what to call it, there's the sense of there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more. You know, some people call it the God-shaped hole in their heart, and I think there's some truth to that, that there's a peace that we're never going to truly feel satisfied in without our relationship with God. You and I, we were created for relationship. The second thing that I would say about this is we were uh, created to also be in relationship with other people. And so even in this perfect environment, Adam's living in comfort, he's living in beauty, he's walking with God, he's talking with God, and yet there's still something lonely inside of him. And so yes, we're created for a relationship with God, but we also need other people around us. I think some of us get that, but not all of us appreciate it. Like some of you in the room today, you're extroverts. How many of you are extroverts? Show hands, show hands, show hands. All right. How many of you are introverts? Show hands. There's typically more, but we don't like raising our hands, so we're like, I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Sometimes the thing that we need is the thing that we don't necessarily gravitate towards. So I'm, I'm more introverted than my wife, and so there are times that I'm, I'm around a lot of people, and that's, that's great. I'm well-rested and all of that. And then there's other times that I'm just worn out. I don't know why. That when God wired us, you know, we've got a limited amount of energy. And so there's those times where I just want to pick up crazy bread on the way home and binge watch something on Netflix. Are you tracking with me? That's not always bad, but if that's our default to escape from people, then we're missing part of what God created us for. So we're created for a relationship with God. We're created for a relationship with other people. A third thing that I'd say about that is we need relationships with people that are actually different than us. Now, this is important because a lot of times we get along best with people that are like us. 
right? If we've got a certain personality wiring, we typically get along with people that are wired that same way. But the truth is God made us different on purpose. And so there's something that we will not experience unless we're around people that are different than us. This is one of the reasons why we talk about groups a lot around here. Some skeptics are like, why does church always say you should be in a group? Well, the reason is God created us for a relationship and we need to be in a trusted relationship with people that are different than us that will challenge us and help us grow. So we need people that are older than us. We need people that are younger than us. We need people from different uh, backgrounds than we are. We need people that, that have different wirings this, uh, than us because in those relationships, God uses it to help us grow up. Does that make sense? That makes sense? We need other people. So when I first met my wife, Laura, she was going to another church across town and I was, uh, they, they used to do this Monday night young adult service and they'd have several hundred 20-somethings in the room and Laura was... Uh, volunteering at the service and one of my good friends one of my mentors was preaching at it and so every now and then I'd come down and listen to him preach and then we were working on a little book project and so I'd just come down and check it out and when I showed up at this thing I wasn't looking for a relationship right I wasn't I wasn't looking for are they here I wasn't looking for somebody to date but over time because Laura's part of the leadership team I was around her several times and so one of the times I showed up and I saw her I said what Adam said when he saw Eve for the first time I said whoa man That's terrible. The preacher jokes are strong today. It's like, what, what, what do you say to a girl at a Bible study, at, at, a, at a, a service? I mean, what's the pickup line for church? Do I walk up to her and say, hey, what translation of the Bible do you read? Um, does that work? I mean, she's part of the prayer ministry. Do I walk up to her and say, hey, can we pray together? I believe in holding hands when we pray. And then she like interlocks fingers and does the thumb rub. I'm like, hello, that's uh, a little Ford. It's like, what do you do? Do you walk up to her and say, is your name Grace? Because you're so amazing. I mean, um, I was reading the book of numbers, but yours wasn't in there. Can you can? We had some middle schoolers in the first hour taking notes. I was like, please don't use these. These are... And yet, somehow, we've been married 12 years now. I don't know. I don't know how that happened. Uh, she's blind. She's blind. Yeah. Uh, but what I, I didn't go into that service thinking, I'm looking for the one. But when I met her, of course, she's beautiful. Of course, she's kind. Of course, she's outgoing. But there was some sense as we were dating and then as we got engaged and as we got married that I needed her in my life. And so you and I were created for a relationship. Does that make sense? This is where it starts. Now let me say a little parenthetical statement. I know I'm using the example of my marriage, but this isn't just true in marriage. I know some of you aren't married. I know some of you uh, are at a different stage. And I would just say we all need relationships. So don't just, don't, don't check out on me because I just used a marriage example. We all need, where did it start? Number one, God created us for a relationship. So here's the second question. Where did it go wrong? Why is there so much fracture in relationships today? How come I know so many people that have lost friendships uh, over the last couple years, especially with all the politics and all the things going on and all the social media grandstanding and all the, what went wrong? Well, here's where it first went wrong. If you're looking in your Bibles at Genesis 3, 
So while they're in the garden, it says at the end of chapter 2, verse 25, that they were naked, but they were not ashamed. So there's this picture of connectivity. There's this picture of, of, of intimacy. There's this picture of we have nothing to prove, nothing to hide, nothing to, to go off about. But then in chapter 3, it says the serpent was more cunning than any animal in the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman... Uh, has God really said you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Question mark, question mark, planting seeds of doubt. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the trees which is in the middle of the garden, God said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Verse 4, and the serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. Right? Hear the seeds of doubt. See the See what the enemy's doing. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die, for God knows on the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will become like God, knowing good from evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to their eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves waist coverings. So it goes from chapter 2, verse 25. They were naked and not ashamed. We're connected. We've got nothing to hide. This perfect picture of intimacy. And now just a few verses later, after the enemy, which we know later in Scripture is Satan himself... The enemy places those seeds of doubt. And here's, there's a lot of pieces to this doubt. Like, did God really say that? Like, I can't believe God say it. And then when she responds with what God actually said, he sort of scoffs at God. Like, oh, really? And he begins to cause her to question, does God really want what's best for my life? That's really at the root of this. Does God really want what's best for my life? Does God really want what's good? And the enemy makes her think that she would be happier stepping outside of what God says. Does that make sense? And, you know, in, in their world, it's like, well, why would God limit you? Well, the truth is we all live within limitations. We live by the lake. Fish need the water. If the fish are like, ah, forget it. I don't want the water today. Guess what? They're going to die, Right? Airplanes need dynamics, right? We, we need limitations in our lives. Limitations aren't actually to harm us. They're actually to protect us. Are you tracking with me? Right? There are positive things to limitations. And so the enemy does, what the enemy does is twist this moment where God says, here's the perfect environment. Here's how you experience my best. And the enemy places those seeds of doubt. She buys into it. Adam buys into it. And in that moment, their innocence was lost. So no longer is there that picture of connectedness. No longer is there that intimacy that is so beautiful. Now that intimacy has been replaced by shame. It's been replaced by guilt. It's been replaced by fear. Their eyes are open. Hey, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. And, but what ends up happening is they feel shame. They feel fear. They feel this disconnection. And they don't know what to do with it. They're like, what do we do? And so instead of being naked and not ashamed, they realize they're naked and they try to clothe themselves with fig leaves. But here's the problem. Fig leaves were never designed to be clothes. Right? They're never designed. And what ends up happening in that moment is literally this happened. But metaphorically, what ends up happening 
is they created two selves. They created the, their inside selves of who they actually are, and they created an external self of fig leaves of here's what I'm going to present. And it'd be easy for us to look back at that saying, man, how dumb is that? But I got to be honest, we do the same thing in our generation. We allow those little seeds of doubt to be planted in our minds. Does God really know what's best for me? And we begin to step out of bounds. We end up stepping out of the safe place that God's created for us. Sometimes we do it through work. Sometimes we wear a fig leaf of work. There's people in our generation that, that find all of their identity and how successful they are and working their way up the corporate ladder and making more money and jumping ship from place to place to place. And they're wearing this fig leaf of finding identity in their work instead of in who they are. Sometimes people wear the fig leaf of being helpful. Now that sounds weird when I say it out loud, but sometimes people start out uh, uh, trying to be helpful to the people around them, but over time, if they're not careful, they find their, 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 uh, their identity in being needed by somebody else. And so if they're not careful, they wear a fig leaf of needing to be needed, right? And so they're trying to find worth out of meeting the needs of other people, whether or not that person wants it or not. Sometimes people wear the fig leaf of health and exercise. I mean, our gyms are jam-packed while people's souls are withering away on the, on the inside. They're, they're so about the filters and how they look online that on the inside that they're forgetting. It's a fig leaf. Sometimes, honestly, in our generation, sexuality is one of those fig leaves where God has said, hey, this is, hey, if you want my best, here's, here's how it's designed. It's designed between a man and a woman in marriage for life. And, and the world says, yeah, but... Maybe God doesn't really know what's best. And, and so we put this fig leaf on. We find our identity in sexuality when, in truth, is our identity is far deeper than, than, than our bodies and far deeper than, than that desire. And so on and on and on, if we're not careful, we end up wearing fig leaves and we end up living on the surface. Does that make sense? Sometimes we, we, we put the surface thing on. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we heard a comedian talking about just surface conversation. That's a, a good example of how sometimes we like to keep it on the surface. This one guy was talking about um, riding with Uber drivers. How many of you have done like Uber or Lyft recently? And so this one guy was talking, hey, anytime I have to take an Uber to the airport, my one job is not to offend my Uber driver, right? I don't want them to drop me off on the side of the road. I don't want to end up being a Dateline episode. You know what I'm saying? And uh, and so he said, so the way that I stay alive in my Uber driver car is by agreeing with whatever they say politically. And he said, and, and here's the way I do it. I let them talk like they, they start getting, you know, very strongly opinionated about whatever view. And it could be on either end of the spectrum. And he said, here's what I've learned to do. When they pause, my response is just, man, that's crazy, isn't it? And then the driver kicks back in and the driver starts talking more and more and more and more. Man, can you believe this? Believe this? And then when the driver pauses, he says, here's my second phrase. My second phrase is, isn't that crazy? And then the driver goes on and on and on and on and on again. And then when the driver pauses again, it's like, man, when are they going to wake up? <laughs> He's like, you can go through the whole conversation. But just, and that's the, honestly, that's the way I feel about sports. In the first hour, Nathan McGill was sitting up here. Nathan first attended our church several years ago. I happened to be preaching on Super Bowl Sunday. And because I know nothing about sports, I didn't mention the Super Bowl at all. And so he thought that was a good thing. He, so he went on Facebook. He said, I finally went to a church that didn't talk about the Super Bowl on Super Bowl Sunday. And so today I broke the rule and I talked about the Super Bowl. 
And what I said is, I don't know anything about the Super Bowl. I literally do not know who's playing tonight, but I know my small group's going to have great Super Bowl food, so that's going to be delicious. But what I've learned in church world is you have to keep it surface level. So when somebody comes up to me and they start talking about the game, I've learned similar to that Uber experience where all I have to say is when somebody's talking about their favorite team, I can be like, man, if they play like that tonight, <laughs> And then they start talking, 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 talking. Man, if, you know, who knows what's going to happen? And then they start talking, right? So sometimes it's funny to stay on the surface, but this month is called Beneath the Surface. Life-giving relationships go beneath. Number one, where did it start? It started with God creating us for a relationship. What went horribly wrong? Sin entered into the world, and it created static between us and God and us and everybody else around us. And we try to put on fig leaves that were never meant to be our identity. And then the third question is, well, how do we recapture what was lost? And honestly, I'm going to run out of time on this. And so I want to encourage you to check out the weekday podcast this week on Tuesday and Thursday. I'll, I'll unpack this a little bit further. But what ends up happening is God actually models what a life-giving relationship looks like. Let me give you just the high-level view of what that means. Uh, underneath that third idea, how do we recapture what was lost? Well, the first way, the first you know, sort of um, attribute of a life-giving relationship is, number one, they initiate, they don't invade. They initiate, they don't invade. What's interesting in chapter 3, verse 8, Adam and Eve have sinned. They feel shame, and it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God among the garden, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man. God called to him. God's initiating. He's, he's not like, I'm never going to be around you again. He's initiating. He's like, hey, I'm here. I'm safe. He's walking towards them while they're running away, which I think is amazing. A second char characteristic of life-giving relationships, and number two, they question, they don't accuse. They question, they don't accuse. One of the tensions in a lot of relationships is we try to fix the people around us and we start telling them what they should do. And we try to give them answers to questions they're not even asking. But here's what God models. Look at verses nine through 11. It says, then the Lord God called to the man and he said, where are you? Let me ask you a question. Do you think God actually didn't know where they were? But he's leading with questions. Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? Adam responded, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God asked him, who told you you were naked? These are questions. He's not coming at him accusatory. He's not, I can't believe you did that. That fig is so last year fashion. I mean, I can't. He asked questions. Why? Because questions help us drop our guard, don't they? They initiate, they don't invade. They question, they don't accuse. Number three, they tell the truth. They don't deny. They tell the truth. They don't deny. What happens in verses 17 through 19 is God tells them the consequence for their sin. It says, then to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, in other words, Adam, you knew better. Even if she didn't know the whole conversation, you knew better. Cursed is the ground because of you, and soil you will eat, and out of it all the days of your life, but thorns and thistles that shall grow for you, and you will eat plants of the field by the sweat of your face, 
You'll eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He's, he's not glossing over it, but at the same time, he's not beating them up either. He's telling them the truth. And I think that's one of the tensions we feel is we feel like maybe life-giving relationship is just telling somebody what they want to hear, and that's not actually true. Uh, being a life-giving relationship is telling the truth. It's like when I go to the doctor, the doctor could tell me, yeah, Bobby, you, that prayer and fasting was great. You dropped the 30 pounds you were hoping to drop. Well done. Would that be the truth? Thank you for being kind and not answering. No, it's not the truth. I want a doctor that's going to not beat me up, but I want a doctor that's going to tell me the truth because through a proper diagnosis, right, if I've got some sickness, the most caring thing to do is to actually tell me the truth so that I can find help. Are you tracking with me? So God tells the truth. He doesn't deny it. Number four, they respond. They don't run away. They respond. They don't run away. It says, then the Lord God called to the man and he said, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. And every step along the way, God's responding. God's modeling. Hey, I'm walking towards you. And the last one, number five, is a life-giving relationship protects it doesn't expose. It protects. It doesn't expose. This is one of the things I love about our small group. We could talk about anything in our small group, and I know that it's safe within our small group. I know that there's no judgment there in our small group. I know that I could be completely honest if I'm doing well, not doing well. I've got friends in my life that protect. They don't expose. L look at what it says in verses 20 and 21. It says, Now the man called his wife Eve because she's the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And so in other words, after God walks through this, God shows them that redemption is possible. And God himself performs the first sacrifice to cover their sin. This is a picture of ultimately what God's going to do through Jesus on the cross. Where he says, give me your shame. Give me your false sense of identity. Give me your fig leaves, and I will clothe you. How amazing would it be for all of us to have relationships that when we're honest and we hit rock bottom, we don't have to worry about somebody sharing it with somebody else. And so, can you believe that person? Oh, I've got a good prayer request this week for you. What if instead we were in covenant relationship that said, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to protect you. What's so interesting is a lot of times when we think about sin, we think about actions, actions, actions. But the foundation of this first sin was more about a broken relationship. And because God loves us, because he cares about us, he makes it possible to bring any broken relationship and ultimately our relationship with him to him. And he provides the solution that Jesus came to this earth. He lived a perfect sinless life. He died on the cross for my sins, your sins, the sins of the world. What's interesting is that this all started in the garden with a tree, and it points to a tree that is in the shape of a cross. And so my challenge for all of us today, if we want to be life-giving people, let's choose the right tree. Does that make sense? Can I pray for us this morning? As Zach and the team comes out, I would love for you just to think about, is there a relationship in your life that you want to lift up to God today? Maybe in your head and your heart. Maybe there's a name of a person you want to lift up, or maybe there's a category of friendship, whether it's a coworker or a family member that you've been estranged from.
Maybe there's a name that you just want to lift up and say, God, as best as I can, help me to be a life-giving person to them. But maybe this morning as we pray, you realize that it's really hard to have life-giving friendships when you don't have the life of Jesus in you. And you just say, I, I need that. Maybe it'd be in your head and your heart that you just say, dear Jesus, I, I know that I've sinned. I, if it wasn't for Adam, I still would have blown it my own self. But I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe you're alive today. And as best as I know how, I ask you to forgive me of my sins and save me. Take my fig leaves and give me your cloth, your cloth of righteousness. If that's you, I would encourage you to drop us an email this week at hello at sugarhillchurch.com. Hello at sugarhillchurch.com. We'd love to talk to you about how to take next steps in Jesus this week. In a moment, I'm going to finish praying. After I finish praying, we're going to stand. Zach and the team's going to lead us before we head out. But I would just encourage you, in this moment, bring that name to him. Bring that relationship. Bring that, maybe there's been some hurt in your life that you've been holding on to. Maybe there's a fig leaf you've been holding to. Would you bring that to him and allow him to exchange your leaves for his covering? Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a God of grace. Thank you that you've made a way even when we didn't deserve it. Thank you that you model responding and not running away, covering and not exposing. God, would you help us to trust you? Trust that you truly are good, that you know us best and you know what's best for our lives. God, help us not to find our identity in anyone or anything else besides you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's